Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest does research, teaches, and speaks on topics related to purchasing decisions and metrics in the legal market, law firm management, and change in law firms. She's been studying client purchasing decisions for over a decade and earned her PhD on the topic. She's the executive director of the Buying Legal Council, an organization of procurement professionals tasked with sourcing legal services and managing legal services supplier relationships. A lecturer at Columbia Law School and an adjunct professor at Fordham Law School, she's authored and co-authored writings on the topics noted and has completed studies on these and related topics in the U.S., EU, and Latin America. Dr. Sylvia Hodges-Silverstein, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. Happy to be here. Great to have you as a guest on our show, Sylvia. Sylvia, let's dive right in. There's so much to cover. I'm excited to have you on our program. In the introduction to your legal procurement survey that was published just recently here in 2017, in the white paper, it states that you expect to redo the survey next year and that you would expect that the results would show a swelling in the ratio of procurement professionals to legal spend rate. And there's some other comments about the expectation that the market is going to support the narrowing of suppliers. Any predictions as to why the expansion will occur? Is that a definite trend over either previous data that you were able to gather? Where's that trend coming from? So when we look at actually companies with significant legal spending, they started to involve procurement in the evaluation and the selection of legal service providers in the early to mid 2000s with the actually the earliest legal uh, procurement activities dating back to the mid to late 1990s. And among the first industries to embrace legal procurement were mostly the very highly regulated industries, such as the pharmaceutical companies and the financial services institutions, as well as the the energy companies and utilities. As you know, Nicole, in, in many corporations, legal services, they used to be pretty much exempt from the intense cost scrutiny of other business units and functions that the that they've been facing for years. And I'd say the 2008 financial crisis was more like a catalyst for legal procurement that accelerated the, the adoption of legal procurement, particularly in these large corporations. But it's a trend that we have been seeing in professional services for 20, 30 years now. I definitely see more and more companies to embrace legal procurement. And when we look back in 2010, when I discovered procurement being involved in the sourcing of legal services, people were saying, no, no, this can't be. But then, you know, in 2017, it's a completely normal thing. Absolutely. I worked at an actuarial firm and and ran business development for them in 2008. And we, of course, were thinking we would be exempt as trusted advisors from that additional scrutiny. And it started and it continued. Today, that environment and how we price and how we contract with clients has significantly changed. That said, do you think and have you seen and has the data suggested that all the services, including real intellectual property-based legal support from firms, real advice is actually under the same scrutiny or similar scrutiny to legal services? and some of the areas where you would expect there to be purchasing more involved, i.e. legal technology, etc.? 
there are definitely differences. There will be difference in terms of which procurement tools are being involved and how procurement uh, will use a process. But I would say when we really look at the most sophisticated legal procurement organizations, you definitely see that procurement is involved in really from the commodities to the high stakes. And there are very, very few scenarios where procurement is completely excluded and the GC goes right to a lawyer or a law firm and says, I hire you, just like it used to happen. It's interesting, as we're interviewing general counsel, we're definitely seeing desire to have better business relationships with the law firms that they're working with. And we're hearing a lot of different trends. We want to talk about the data, of course, in the study. It's very interesting that we're hearing trends that suggest that really that relationship-based business development strategy that some partners, some firms thought was really going to keep them in business, that that is going away. The general counsel, the in-house legal departments, and their procurement partners are really requiring more thought-out business case, definitely alternative fee arrangements, more direction that where those internal or those in-house legal departments can budget. Does any of the data support that? If so, I know know, having looked at your study that different firms wrote in comments, love to hear about the data and if any of the respondents talked about either some negative experiences working with firms that felt that relationship would trump business case, any information you can share on that, I'm sure our listeners would appreciate. So procurement's involvement is typically a top management mandate rather than a, say, a desire that comes from the legal department. When we look at what are the main drivers for bringing in procurement? Well, I would say definitely managing costs and reducing supplier spending is number one. Uh, Then ensuring that the company buys goods and services in compliance with uh, company policies. And then making sure the company gets good products and services from reputable, high-quality suppliers. Other drivers for bringing in procurement might include the desire to achieve a more objective comparison of legal service providers through actually measuring and benchmarking outside counsel's value. Also, the desire to streamline operations, improve efficiencies, find better ways to structure fee arrangements and budgeting and and finally the desire to increase predictability and transparency so i know i've heard that many times that oh procurement comes in and then ruins our relationships but i would definitely argue that relationships with providers are also very important to procurement not just to the in-house counsel but it's a different kind of relationship so it is much more of a business driven call it supply relationship management approach so this supply relationship management or SRM entails creating closer, more collaborative relationship with key suppliers. So here are the law firms to, to uncover and realize like new values and, and reducing the, the risk of failure. Traditionally, the process of selecting a law firm, Nicole, was about first, which firms can do the work. And then second, which lawyer or lawyers in a firm do I like? Do I trust? And and perhaps who was rec- uh, recommended to me by my peers? So this has changed. So now with legal procurement's involvement, this process is different. Procurement does a lot of due diligence on which firms or legal service providers are able to do the work. And then second comes the metrics-driven choice of the firm. So does working with that firm make good business sense for us? 
So procurement looks at numbers, your numbers, they look at their numbers, they look at your competitors' numbers, they compare and benchmark. So that's how, yes, it's still about relationships, but a different type of relationship, if you will. Great response and one that I can say one of the proponents of some teaching that I was able to deliver to a client, we really talked about that the relationship can actually trump the decision of who to go to if all other factors are equal. So if the business case is equal with two firms, so they can do the work, they've got the lawyer, we feel that we can trust the lawyer. If there's two firms, then if the referral came from someone that we have a stronger relationship with, we may go with that firm. I think, you know, those things can work in conjunction, right? The relationship and the data can kind of line up together. Of course, especially in a risk-averse industry, I would assume that the data and the business case is really where you're talking about reducing risk, not the relationship. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned key suppliers. That was part of the statement you made on that last point. The data suggests that there's a desire, and we've definitely heard that on left foot from our general counsel folks that we've interviewed. There's a desire to reduce the number of firms that organizations work with. Can you talk about the the data and what you found in those cases where they are using more than three or 400 different law firms, what the future holds for those firms? that likely are going to be asked to be put to the test to to keep business at companies. What are the trends there and where do we see that going? So let's say the desire to actually lower the number of firms is actually not really a new idea, even for the legal industry. DuPont has spearheaded their convergence trend or the so-called DuPont model of reducing the number of law firms back in the early 1990s. What it is, is basically just an idea of reducing the number of of suppliers to facilitate the better management of uh, outside counsel, as well as increasing the purchasing power to obtain lower rates from outside counsel. When we look at that, again, it's it's nothing new. And um, I think it will be interesting for who will be the winners and who will be the losers of that. When we look at, for example, at boutique firms, right now, I think it will be at least for the segment of the, the, the largest companies in the world that we looked at in, in our survey. It will be hard for, for boutiques to get on panels of large companies unless we're really talking about a specialty panel for a particular type of work. Uh, but again, you know, those are the findings from our legal procurement uh, survey. They only apply to the largest companies in the world because really only those who have sufficiently large legal spend typically bring in legal procurement. Outside of these big global spenders, there is certainly a, a room for boutiques, and I think that they will continue to be hired as well. That whole idea of risk, a lot of these large firms are concerned enough where they, to your point, unless it's a very specific niche, very specific specialty, they, they are typically relying on the firms that they feel represent them as large organizations. They're looking at those large firms. Very strong point there. So I've had the pleasure today of doing several interviews. And my last interview was with someone who said something similar to a piece that was in your writing around lawyers not wanting to have the conversation. And those are in-house lawyers, in-house counsel, not wanting to have the conversation around 
rates and pricing and negotiating. And that legal procurement is seen as a team member, a valued partner to go out and start negotiations with the firm and and really take care of those unpleasant activities. Sylvia, I'd love to get your perspective on why that is, what the data suggests. And frankly, as I mentioned in this last interview, I said, what is causing lawyers who frankly like to talk to feel so uncomfortable about the communication around rates? It is definitely a different thing to, let's say, negotiate in court versus negotiating price. So I think that part of the situation is that's probably true both for in-house counsel as well as for outside counsel because they have a relationship with each other and they have to work with each other on a daily basis and having to talk about money that's just not necessarily I mean I think it's a common human thing that we don't really like doing that so that's part of the thing but also I think part of the thing uh, the situation is that lawyers are typically not trained like procurement people or other um, business professionals to work with numbers and so when you go into negotiations you really need to know your numbers i mean there are always exceptions but by and large this is more of a domain of of procurement professionals than of lawyers whether it's in-house or outside so i think it makes a lot of sense for both sides the law firms as well as the companies to bring in procurement and have them conduct the negotiations. And what we've seen a lot in the last few years is that they sort of act as, if necessary, as the the bad cop. So the in-house counsel uh, can continue with their role as a good cop in their relationship. There's often from the in-house lawyers uh, side the view that they worry whether procurement really understands the legal department's priorities. So traditionally, but this is clearly changing. You know, lawyers are often not big fans of, of procurement and the procurement processes they, they bring, at least from the start. And uh, depending on how they are being measured and, and evaluated, savings, something that the procurement does definitely care about, often doesn't matter to them as much as they matter to the procurement professionals. And so there are a number of things that I think that procurement professionals should do to actually get their foot in the door or get, get at the table to be seen as someone who can control contribute. So I think it's really important for them to build a relationship with legal. It's a good thing if they can sit with their colleagues in legal or at least schedule regular meetings. They should ask questions, understand the issues, learn legal concepts, and then lawyers speak and definitely avoid procurement lingo. They need to relate, engage, and, and come with different options or scenarios. As you know, Nicole, lawyers are trained to argue and find fault. So by by maybe showing them different scenarios, they can reason about the most fitting solution or hence more likely to embrace it. So I think it's important to to, to do that. And then finally, procurement professionals, uh, they can also make themselves useful in a number of ways. For example, you know, in RFPs show their skills and usefulness and do a lot of the legwork for the legal team, so the number crunching, and really learn what's important to their in-house counsel colleagues and and research different alternatives. So, you know, just show that they are aware of their concerns and know what keeps them up at night. Great points and becoming a resource for them and someone that can assist with that number crunching. It's always a great way to become a part of the team. And then, of course, you can influence from there. 
In your white paper, there was a quote that I'd like to read for our listeners. The pattern of industry's disruption is familiar. New competitors with new business models arrive. Incumbents choose to ignore the new players or to flee to higher margin activities. A disruptor whose product was once barely good enough achieves a level of quality acceptable to the broad middle of the market, undermining the position of longtime leaders and often causing new basis of competition. The source was Clayton Christensen, and it was an article in Harvard Business Review in 2013. I thought the quote was important to our discussion. This whole idea of the disruptors in the legal market today, the organizations like Axiom and and others that look like Axiom in different segments of the market, of course, all the technology vendors, the artificial intelligence and the e-procurement and all the different areas that we're seeing entrance. Can you talk about legal procurement and their role and where you see these great new technologies and these new additions into the legal space, how purchasing is going to be involved with them and the acceptance of both in-house counsel and outside firms and the fact that this is part of the new normal. One thing is definitely that procurement does not have these long-standing relationships that have been growing over years, if not decades, with the, say, traditional law firms that in-house lawyers might have. For well over a decade now, we have seen more and more alternative legal service providers appear. The take-up hasn't been necessarily fast, but we do see that unbundling work, dividing work between different firms and different providers, as well as uh, legal process outsourcing companies, that has become much more accepted. And I would say, and we've seen it in our research, that work will continue to shift from traditional law firms to new model law firms or other alternative legal service providers. These alternative models are disruptors in the legal market, just like the Clinton Christensen quote. And when we look at that hallmark of disruptive services is that they're generally simpler and more affordable than the traditional model. And so these disruptors, they pursue a lower margin typically higher volume profit in, in, in the markets they target. So for the traditional law firms, these, these newcomers, they have an offering that they might not see as attractive as existing solutions. Definitely attractive to clients, to clients who say don't always need to have a Rolls-Royce or Bentley or Mercedes. You know, sometimes uh, Honda might just be the right thing that, that I want. So they are definitely becoming more and more attractive to clients. I would say we haven't quite reached the tipping point yet in our market, but we're definitely going in that direction. You know, I have to agree. And we're seeing these large contracts that are being signed by some of these service providers. And you're absolutely correct. It's on those repeatable services, but not those requiring that that level of legal assistance that requires really that specialty, that higher end decision making person to get involved. Just as Clayton Christen says, you know, the disruptors go in the market and they do the lower margin work first. But then over time, actually, they go higher and higher into more and more complicated things. I would say we definitely see or are likely to see this in our market as well. Absolutely. Something we're hearing, and it's popping into our interviews on Left Foot, it definitely was present in discussions just recently when I was at Legal Week in New York. We're hearing e-auction come in. We're hearing reverse auctions talked about. I know some of the data that you gathered did address those topics. Can you share basically what the data presented with our listeners? 
we go back for a second to when the first e-auction, as far as I know, ran in 2002. It was a UK bank that, that launched it. There was a complete uproar in the legal press about it and how it commoditized such a high-value service. By and large, opinions still vary on whether reverse auctions or e-auctions are appropriate for legal services. But in our study, we found that legal procurement professionals in what we defined as the most successful group, they interestingly had the highest percentage of those running reverse auctions or e-auctions. And an explanation could be that you have to be sophisticated, rather well advanced in your pursuit of legal procurement to do them well. You know, in general, I would say to e-auction or not to e-auction appears to be sort of a philosophical question for, uh, for companies. I think on both sides, this is just an assumption from what we're hearing. Folks are saying we tried it. We're not sure the outcome was what we had intended. The market has come to accept it much more as normal. I mean, it's definitely a nerve-wracking exercise. And because in the end, you realize I'm not the only provider of this service. There are others that they're considering. The paper that summarizes the data collected in the survey, or your comments say that the use of RFPs and AFAs will dramatically rise in the future. Can we assume this will be practice area by practice area, matter by matter, and not really law firm by law firm? RFPs and AFAs will be specific to certain areas. Comments on that? In our study, the RFPs were rated the most highly and were also used by 71.9% of of the survey respondents. I believe it was 19.3% of those who are not currently using RFPs, they're planning to use them for legal services in the future. So many companies already use RFPs for their panel selection, but particularly those companies who spend lots of money on legal services and are very sophisticated in their approach to legal procurement, they also tend to use RFPs for individual matters or portfolios of matters. But to make that work, so to do matter RFPs, the process really needs to be fast and responsive because otherwise you are just a bottleneck and that doesn't work. In terms of procurement professionals and alternative fee arrangements, we found that legal procurement professionals see alternative fee arrangements and a project-based budget as an effective tool to drive value that they receive from, from legal service providers. We are definitely seeing more and more that they're using it. Very often, because sometimes you hear, oh, you know, in the end, the client just wants a discount. Well, I think that's that's a really uh, very simplistic way to look at it. And it's not what I'm seeing. I think both sides are still trying to figure out. And I think that, you know, should hurry up a little bit to figure it out faster. Both sides are really trying to figure out, you know, what would be the right price. Again, you know, there are many discussions in the industry about the future and uh, of, of AFAs and whether clients really want them. I think that we have almost gone beyond the the tipping point and i would actually say ifa should no longer be called alternative fee arrangements but as, as some already call them appropriate fee arrangements so th- my opinion for what i see on the procurement side they're definitely not off the table and this kind of a approach to put a price tag on something is completely normal in other industries it is completely normal for many 
other very complex services. I remember that I talked with CEO of a company that was a supplier for nuclear reactors. And he said, I can't believe that these lawyers can put a price tag on a simple you know, commercial litigation. We have when we do these nuclear reactors, there's so many things that can go wrong. There's not necessarily uh, much sympathy by, by some of the business people for this inability or hesitation to put on a price tag. Obviously, it seems to be because of the the tenure and and frankly success around it that it is not new. It's it's normal at this point to have fixed budget related services in the legal environment. Allow the clients to budget for a particular matter, hopefully for their legal spend, they have to be somewhat flexible and and really support that. That's what we're hearing from the clients. It's definitely what we're hearing from the GCs is they have to be able to budget at least until they're notified that the budget isn't going to work for a particular item or a particular matter. Sylvia, I don't know if you want to comment on this. When we raise this type of question with general counsel and then with leaders and firms, they tell us that the real problem is that the lawyers don't want to have these conversations because, again, we go back to risk. They don't know what the right answer is, and therefore they're not because there isn't a right answer when they're projecting. It's a projection, and they're uncomfortable with the risk. That's certainly true. In business, it's... It's part of business to do your research and, and make calculations, do your analysis and, and then make assumptions and then be willing and take risk. No business person, no entrepreneur would ever start anything if everything was always a hundred percent waterproof. As we talk to corporate lawyers, M&A lawyers, and when we talk to general counsel, they say the same thing. They're having to move so quickly when they're working with each other on deals, on opportunities, that the general counsel says, I need your best answer now or in the next five hours. And really those lawyers, those corporate lawyers, those M&A attorneys are saying, we have to be able to give them our best answer. And sometimes it's not 100% fully vetted and fully researched. It's the best answer we have at the end of those five hours. Sylvia, it's been a great interview. I'd like to give you the opportunity to add anything to our discussion that you feel would be helpful for our listeners, our lawyers, our in-house general counsel, and and people in the legal ecosystem. Thank you so much for the interview. Greatly enjoyed it. So I definitely think it's important to understand that, that legal procurement is here to stay. Legal procurement is not going away. There are numbers and metrics driven people. So it's always better to take an approach of show rather than tell, come with specific examples, show how you helped your client to reach their goal in a more efficient and effective way. Definitely seek a relationship with with legal procurement. I think that's very important. So you don't just have the relationship necessary with the in-house counsel to take care of, but particularly the business people and the law firms, they are the right people to actually reach out to procurement. And that's something that we're seeing more and more. And we actually have legal procurement dialogue calls where we invite procurement professionals to answer any question a law firm representative might have. When you're in an RFP situation, you don't feel like you can ask all these questions that you want to know. But when you're in a more friendly environment, then it's much, much easier to ask questions. I definitely think that relationships need to be developed, again, not only with the in-house lawyers, but more and more with procurement. Great last point. Thank you. Very informative interview. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you so much, Nicole. Appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. 